did Jesus talk about? I mean, if you talk with me, you want to hear about food and, you know, good food and meals and things like that. And, and, and I'm sure Jesus probably talked about that stuff. You know, there are some parables about it. We don't have a lot of record about sort of the, the back and forth along the way, but I'm sure Jesus talked about, you know, that last meal and how good the food was and the wine at this place and, and how the bread was so warm when it came out and those sorts of things. I mean, I'm sure he talked about things that he loved, you know, like that. Um, I'm sure they talked about his family and his friends, and we have accounts of some of that. But what did Jesus talk about? What did Jesus talk about most, and what did Jesus talk about first? I think that's important. The gospel accounts give us um, varying accounts of, uh, of that, not varying in the, in the sense that they're different, but they show us different parts of it. The Gospel of Mark, I think, is most helpful in this way in terms of what did Jesus talk about? What was the first thing he talked about? How did he sort of get into it? And uh, in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 14 and 15, we see it say, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee. And what was he talking about? What was he declaring? Proclaiming the gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. This is what Jesus talked about. And whether you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and whether it's described as the gospel of heaven, or the gospel of the kingdom, or the good news of heaven, or the kingdom of heaven, or the gospel of God, the good news about God's love for humanity and his plan to rescue them. Like this is what Jesus talked about because Jesus had a perfect love for God and a perfect love for people that are created in the image and likeness of God and a perfect love for the people that he was calling and inviting to himself. These are the things that Jesus talked about. Jesus talked about the gospel. And this series is called We Are His and we've been talking about the reality that we are who we are because he is who he is. Village Church exists to glorify God. We glorify God because that's what Jesus did. By growing and multiplying disciples. We grow and multiply disciples because Jesus grew and multiplied disciples. Who are delighting in Jesus. We delight in Jesus because Jesus delighted in his Father. Declaring the good news about Jesus and displaying the life of Jesus because every village needs Jesus. This morning we're talking about the reality that we are declaring the good news about Jesus. We are who we are because he is who he is. Jesus is declaring the gospel. And so as a church, we declare the gospel. We bring glory to God by growing and multiplying disciples. What kind of disciples? Last week we said the ones that have joy in and delight in Jesus. And who are this morning declaring the good news about Jesus. We declare the gospel because Jesus declared the gospel. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian and you're asking yourself, what is this gospel word? If you're a Christian, you know the gospel literally means good news or the good news. And I think this morning the gospel in short form could be summed up something like this. And if you've been coming to the Village Church for a long time, you know that we say this almost every week. We say something like this. That the good news about the gospel is that Jesus lived a life we could never live or we would never live, a sinless life before God, a perfectly sinless life before God on our behalf. And that Jesus died a death that we should have died, a sinner's death on the cross and in our place instead of us and for our sins. And that Jesus rose to give us a life we could never have otherwise, a sanctified life. That is, a life that is set apart for God. That's what sanctified means. And a life that's increasingly growing to look something like him, 
that we're supposed to be conformed or made into the image of Christ. And over our lifetimes, that happens over time. And this is what Jesus wants for us. And that he alone is the way and the truth and the life. That's what he said. And the only way to relationship with God. This was what the apostles proclaimed throughout the book of Acts. This is what the Bible documents as, in short form, I believe, the gospel of God. But you might be thinking, well, isn't there a longer story? Like, why did Jesus have to come? And so, if you're a Christian, um, maybe give me a moment this morning. Maybe the familiar, the story's familiar to you, but I hope it's not old to you. You know, I hope it's not rote to you. I hope it's not boring to you, okay? I hope it doesn't get old to you. But if you're not yet a Christian, let me just pause for a moment and, and tell you the longer story. The longer story is, is something like this, that there was, there is, and there always will be one God who made heaven and earth and, and everything in it, including you and me. And he made us in his image and his likeness to be something like him. And he created us with dignity and with value and worth and purpose. But instead of fulfilling our ultimate purpose in bringing glory to him through our lives, we actually wanted the glory for ourselves. We chose to sin against him, to rebel against him. In a sense, to substitute ourselves for himself. We tried to overthrow God. There's been a theologian that called this the de-godding of God. You know, living our lives by our own standards and bringing ourselves glory instead of him. Putting ourselves in charge of our own lives instead of him. And because we've done that, the Bible says that we've willingly separated ourselves from God. Not wanting to relate to God, but to be God ourselves. To be God of our own lives and of our own existence and of our own destiny. And the Bible says that in doing that, we've actually put ourselves under the judgment of God instead of the grace and the mercy of God. That's called sin. That rebellion against God. That, no, we're going to rule over you. You're not going to rule over us. No, I'm not going to obey you. You're going to do what I ask of you, this attitude toward God. And you might say, I don't have that attitude toward God. Well, at some point in time, it seems that we all have. You're probably sitting next to a Christian, and they'll look at you and go, yep, that was me at some point in time. But even though we'd done all this, that loving God came lovingly into human history as the man Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. And he was born of a virgin without all the effects of generational sin. And as I just mentioned, he lived a life without sin. Even though the Bible says that he was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And even though Jesus lived a sinless life, he willingly went to the cross to die a sinner's death. And in doing so, he substituted himself for us, the sinless one for the sinful ones. Our first parents, all the way back in the garden when they sinned against God, they, in a sense, substituted themselves for God just as we would have done. They wanted to put themselves in God's place. But at the cross, it's been said that Jesus reversed the substitution. He substituted himself for sinners. So when we... Jesus went to the cross, he willingly took all of our sin and our guilt and our shame for all the times that we've tried to be the God of our own lives. And that means that Jesus Christ, the God who was man, died in our place for our sins. He satisfied the justice of God towards sin 
and he secured the grace and the mercy of God toward those who believe so that when we put our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus as Christians, we believe, because this is what the Bible teaches, that, that our sins can be forgiven and we can be free to live the life that God intended us to from the beginning. Christians believe that Jesus' dead body was put in a tomb and for three days he was buried. We have a lot of good reason to believe that. But we have even more reason to believe that on the third day Jesus rose from the grave and he proved his authority over Satan and sin and death and hell. And in that authority, he commissioned us to go and tell everyone this gospel, this good news, that there is a God who passionately and continually and lovingly and relentlessly and mercifully pursues us, comes after us when we run away from him, to redeem us, to invite us back to himself, and to give us the life that he always intended for us from the beginning. The Bible says that 40 days after raising from death, Jesus ascended to heaven, and today that Jesus is alive and well. That's what Christians celebrate on Easter, that he's ruling and reigning over everyone in every time and every place, and he's commanding everyone everywhere and inviting everyone everywhere to repent of everything they think or say or do that is against him and bring glory to him now in everything they think and say and do because of what he has done for them. And that he's going to come again one day. And all those who are still alive will join him when he comes. That's going to be an amazing day. Maybe we'll make it to that day. And all those who um, know him will enjoy eternity with him, and all those who don't will experience eternity without him and conscious punishment for the way that they've made things. You know, our sin has consequences for our lives and not only our lives, but the lives of those around us. But the good news is we can be forgiven our sin and we can be free to live our lives free from those things. And we can really see transformation happen in the world when we live our lives increasingly the way that God created us for. So. Maybe there's more to it than that. Maybe someone said it better than that. But I think that's sort of the gospel in long form if you've never heard it before. But if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, you might be thinking something like, well, if this is such good news, why haven't more Christians tried to tell it to me? Like if you're really so excited about that whole story and that whole deal about how, like we're separated from God, but God reconciles us to himself. Like literally the God who created everything that we just sang about, like has wants relationship with us and is going to come after us and pursue us even when we run away from him. And even though we sin and do all these things that harm ourselves and harm other people, like he keeps coming, he keeps pursuing, and he wants to reveal himself to us and show himself to us. And he has in the person of Christ and he wants to forgive us and he wants to give us this fantastic life that we could never have outside of him. Why don't we talk about that more? Why don't more Christians tell me that? And if you're a Christian, you might be thinking, why don't I tell more people that? <laughs> right? Why don't I talk about that more often? Well, this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, I think Paul gives us three clues as to why. Look at verses 1 and 2. We finally made it to our passage. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain. I think the first thing we see this morning is we have to receive the gospel before we can declare the gospel. 
We have to receive the gospel before we can declare the gospel. This word receive in this verse literally means to take to oneself or to join to oneself. We have to join ourselves to Christ. Theologians call this being united together with Christ when we believe in who he is and what he's done for us. The Son of God come to save us from our sin. That we have to put ourselves together with him. We, we, we believe in him. We receive him. We join ourselves to him. And I believe one of the reasons that a lot of professing Christians, they might say they're Christians and they might go to church, but they don't share the gospel because they've never received it that way, never really united themselves to Christ by truly believing in the gospel. And then the first question is, have we all received the gospel in a way that um, inextricably shows us that, 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 that we are in Christ and we're connected to him because we've received it, we're declaring it to others. We might not declare the gospel until we do. The second thing I think we can see this morning is that we have to be rooted in the gospel before we're going to declare the gospel. It's not just that we receive it, but that we have to be rooted in it. That word rooted literally means to set, like when something is set and fixed in a place. Think about the, um, think about like a, a giant redwood tree that has its roots that go down deep and out and and, and support this gigantic, beautiful tree. I was in Oakland on Wednesday, and I was on a property that saw this huge redwood tree. And I was like, is that a redwood? And the guy was like, yeah, it is. And it was magnificent, and the roots go down so far and out. That thing is standing. It's not going anywhere. It is set. And until we receive the gospel, and until our lives completely are set, we are set and we're immovable. We're not moving away from the gospel. Why would we share it with anyone else? The third thing I think we see this morning is that we have to be transformed by the gospel before we will declare the gospel. He says, and by which you are being saved. That word being saved means to rescue from danger and destruction, as we all know. But it also means to make whole. And until we see the transforming work of the gospel in our lives, we're not going to be talking about it with other people. We have to receive it, be rooted in it, and, and see the transformation of the gospel in our own lives, I think, before we're going to go out and share it with other people. And the question is this morning, have you received it? Are you rooted in it, and are you being transformed by it? Because if you are, you would be talking about it. We talk about the things that we love. If we have received the gospel, and we're rooted in the gospel, and we're being transformed by the gospel, I can't help but believe we will naturally, and we will normally declare the gospel to ourselves and toward one another and to others that are beyond the walls and windows of this church. Just like if I sat down with Pastor Josh and Pastor David and we were, we were having a meal together, we'd be talking about all kinds of things that we love, but you bet that this would come up. It better come up. Because we love Jesus and we love the truth of his gospel. It just naturally comes up in the midst of everything that we talk about in the things of the everyday ordinary life. When we declare the gospel to ourselves, when we declare the gospel to one another, when we declare the gospel to people outside of the walls and windows of this place, we're declaring some pretty incredible things. And there are nine of them that are in this passage. And I was trying to think of a fancy way to label it all. But you know who already did that? D.A. Carson. And he's smarter than me. So I'm going to use some of his categories. If you're familiar with it, you've seen it. But it's just, I don't know how you could do it better. So here it is. It's really clear. It just really walks through the passage. It's pretty obvious and intuitive when you see it. But the first one is this, that 
What we're declaring when we declare the gospel, what we're declaring is central. It is the central thing. It is the main thing. It is the most important thing about our lives and about life in general. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. What we are declaring when we declare the gospel, we are declaring something central. And the gospel is the central focus of the Christian faith. It is the central focus of the Christian life. Without the gospel, you don't have the Christian faith or the Christian life. There's nothing that's more important than the gospel. And there is nothing that's not attached to the gospel. Everything in our lives is attached to the gospel. That's why as a church we say our values are biblical authority and then gospel centrality. We want to be a gospel-centered church. Not a church that has the gospel on the margins, but a church that talks about this good news every time we're together. That it's attached to everything. That is the purpose of the good news statement at the end of every sermon. That instead of calling it the big idea or whatever you could call it, we call it the good news statement because we want to take the reality of the gospel and the passage of scripture we're in and the realities of your life and we want to try to build bridges between those things because that's what Christians do. They're gospel-centered people. It is the most important thing. It touches everything. You know, this weekend I was with um, some lifelong friends, one of them from out of town who I, I rarely see. And it's just so good to be together. We've been friends for, golly, decades. And so it's so much more enjoyable the more decades there are. And maybe some of you understand that. You have friendships like that. And one of my friends is struggling in his marriage. And, you know, we're talking around a fire, you know, in a backyard about, about all the things and all the issues. And, and what about this? And what about that? And how do you treat this? And how does she feel about that? And, and, and eventually I just paused and I said, how do you think the gospel comes to bear on the way that you guys are treating one another? And it's just like, you know, I was the one that did it that night. One of my other friends could have done it another night. Like, we all understand the truth of the gospel. And one of them texted me the next day and said, hey, I really appreciated when you said that. And I said, you would have said the same thing eventually, right? Like, this is what we do. It touches every aspect of our life in the most important things in our life, in the most important moments of our life. And this is an important moment for him. The gospel is central. Secondly, what we're declaring when we declare the gospel, we're declaring something that's Christological. It's centered on Christ. It's all about him. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel is Christ-centered. It's about him. It's not about us. It's about him and who he is and what he's done, not what we get from him. Yes, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, but Christ. We get Christ is what we get when we get the gospel. It's about him. What we're proclaiming to each other and to people when we proclaim the gospel is Christological. It's Christ-centered. It's about him, not what we get from him. John Piper's all about this. He actually wrote a book, right, called God is the Gospel. I mean, think about that as a title. God is the Gospel. And if you watch Piper's little review, he talks about the fact that we get these incredible gifts, like the forgiveness of sins. He even mentions it in his promo video. But then he says, but we get more than that. We get more than forgiveness of sins. We get God. Like the only reason that we're forgiven of our sin ultimately is not so that we can just live like a more happy life here, although that's part of it. It's so that we get him so that we get him here and we get him there. God is the gospel. 
When we proclaim the gospel, we're also proclaiming and declaring something theological. What we are declaring, thirdly, when we declare the gospel, we are declaring something theological. Not just central and Christological, it's centered on Christ. We're declaring something that's theological, it's about God. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Later on in this passage, we didn't read the verse, but in verse 17, he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And then he says, and you are still in your sins. There are theological reasons why the gospel must be what it is. There are theological implications to it. We're not declaring, listen to me, especially in this environment that we're in, just presently in our culture, we are not declaring something that's primarily moral. When we declare the gospel, we are not declaring something that's primarily moral, that people just live better lives. We are not declaring something that is primarily social, like that this is the answer for our society, although it is. We are not declaring something primarily philosophical, like if we could all just think this way, it would impact us in, in these sort of ethereal ways that would have some kind of practical outworking eventually. Like, although that is true, that is not it. And we're not declaring something political. We're not. When we declare the gospel, we are declaring something theological. Does it have moral implications? Yes. Does it have social implications? Yes. Does that philosophical and, and even political implications? It does. But when we declare the gospel, we are declaring something theological. It's not just that Jesus died. Jesus died for our sins. There are theological reasons why that is important. I mean, the gospel tells us that we have a problem with God. And you know what else the gospel tells us? And not many people will tell you this. The gospel tells us that God has a problem with us. That God has a problem when we're, when, we're, when we're sinning against him and sinning against one another and creating the kind of destruction that, that we have created. I mean, we've made a mess of it, haven't we? And God's not happy about that. Like, we, we, we're at odds with God. Enmity, the Bible says. God's not happy with all that. But the good news about the gospel is God put a plan in place to solve the problem. And he put himself at the center of it in a sacrificial kind of way through Jesus. When we declare the gospel, we're literally helping people to solve the greatest problem they'll ever have in life. It's a theological issue. What we're declaring when we declare the gospel is biblical. I delivered to you of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The gospel is only the gospel as much as it is true in the Bible, as much as it is true from the Scriptures. And the gospel is essentially the storyline of the Bible. It's a biblical or a covenant kind of theology. It's it's the story of God, God's redemption of, of people. The gospel is not what we say it is. The gospel is not what your favorite author says it is. The gospel is not what the favorite blogger that you're subscribed to is feed is. The gospel is not what I said in my notes a tweeter says he is. I don't know what you call someone who's on Twitter, right? The gospel is what the Bible says it is. 
When we say that the gospel is biblical, we're saying it's the gospel that's revealed in the Bible. And I want to tell you, that's really reliable. Part of what we're saying when we say the gospel is biblical is it is reliable. And if you're a Christian, I want you to know that this morning. The gospel that God has given us is reliable. This week I was with a group of the growing leader guys that I'm with. And there are some guys in it that um, have been leaders and I want them along some of the younger guys. And one of those guys is a guy like Dave Jack. And we were talking about the resurrection actually in our growing leaders session this early Tuesday morning. And we started talking about the reliability of scripture. And off the top of his head, Dave Jack just started rattling off all the stats about the manuscript reliability and comparing the Bible to like the Iliad and the Odyssey and Homer and all these other ancient works of antiquity and how the Bible dwarfs them and its evidence and the gaps in years is so short. And like he was just rattling it off the top of his head and it was awesome. <laughs> it was so awesome. It's like you know this stuff and you can just talk about it off the top of your head. Here's a guy who believes the Bible is reliable. The Bible is reliable. It's also historical. What we are declaring is historical. Look at verse 3 where Paul says, For I delivered you of first importance what I also received. He, 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 he gives us a historical account. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. That's pretty specific in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are alive, but some have fallen asleep. That is, they have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Then last of all, as to one untimely board, he appeared also to me. This is why we call the gospel, it's been said, good news. <laughs> it is news. It's not fake news, which we hear a lot about today, right? The gospel is good news. But it is news. It's historical news. I would even go so far as to say it is much historical news as it is good news. Because if it's not historical news and it didn't happen, it's not good news. The gospel is as much historical news as it is good news. The gospel is a historical event through the eyewitness testimony of the witnesses and the apostles. It's something that happened. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a pastor and theologian, writer, he, he says it this way. There's a big difference between good news and good advice. Good news has already happened. Good advice is something you have to apply for yourself. Listen to me. Religion is all about good advice. All religion has to offer is good advice. What the gospel offers is good news. There is something that happened in human history that affects the life of every human being. It is news, not advice. That's what makes the gospel different. That's what makes Christianity different. The gospel is not theory. It is history. Sometimes people say about Christianity, well, that's one theory to explain it. That's one way to explain it. No, no, no. Jesus Christ came into human history, and there's a mountain of evidence to believe that's true. <laughs> we have a faith that's based on facts, not feelings, okay? And, and when we look, this is historically rooted. When you talk about something with someone that's related to the gospel, when you talk about the gospel with someone, when you declare to something, you're declaring something historical to them. But you're also declaring something personable. What we're declaring when we declare the gospel is personal. It's not just historical, it is personal. Now I want you to remind you, brothers, of the gospel to which I preached you, which you received and in which you stand and which you are being saved. Paul's saying, you received this and you're standing in it and you're being saved by it. Like you, you have 
you've taken this on personally. Paul says it about himself in the next verse where it says, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received. When we declare the gospel, we're declaring something to people that has personal implications for them. The death and resurrection of Jesus is not merely or only historical. It is also by nature inherently personal. Like not personal in the sense that, that we get to decide what it means to us. Like, well, the gospel means this to me. No, no, gospel means what it means. But it's personal in the sense that all of us have to make a personal decision about what we believe about it, what we will do with it. What will you do with this history that happened? How will that impact your life? I mean, the gospel is not history that has no personal bearing on our lives. Gospel is history that has an enormous bearing, the most enormous bearing on our life. There is nothing in human history that is more bearing on your life or on my life. That is what we are declaring when we declare the gospel. It is personal. It has to be personal. Last night I shared dinner with um, my family, and my folks went to um, France with my, uh, my sister and brother-in-law who is a... Uh, Who's a doctor? I should have been a doctor. I should have been. I just, I, I looked at the meal they were having. They literally sat like in the arches and they, they had a meal overlooking the pyramid at, at the Louvre. And, the, you know, and it's like, oh, man, I, I should, my mom wanted me to be, I should have been a doctor. You know, I should, should be there. It looked like a fantastic meal. <laughs> you know, the doctor. So, you know, good for them. I'm, you know, I'm just so happy. <laughs> so happy for them. You know, Let's see future doctors in the room. You know, I'm, I'm happy for you guys. I really am. But, you know, they were telling us about Versailles. And, you know, I've been to Versailles, you know. They told us about the Louvre. I've been to the Louvre. I've been to the Dorsey. You know, I, like, walked all these places they've been. And we're talking about all this art and all this history. And guess what? I don't care. <laughs> like, at the end of the day, it's, it's really beautiful. It's wonderful. It does not impact my life. Like, I saw, right, the crown jewels. I saw the, the crown that ha- it's just, uh, you can't even, you can't even, you can't even calculate its worth. It doesn't matter to me. I don't care who wore it. It has no bearing on my life. The gospel does. It has bearing on every person's life. That's what the Bible says. You have to do something with it personally. It's not just history. A couple more and then we'll be done. When we declare the gospel, what we're declaring is we're declaring something transformational. It's not just history. You have to receive it personally. When you receive it personally, it has to transform you. That's the nature of the gospel by which you are being saved. Paul says of himself, for I am the least of the apostles, verses 9 and 10. Unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. But, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was worked within me. Please listen carefully. Where there is no transformation, there is no gospel. Like, if there's no transformation in our life, there is no gospel in our life. I'm not saying, like, there is, like, this enormous transformation right at the beginning and everything's transformed radically in a way you, could, you, you can't even explain. Like, you went from 1 to 10, like, in an instant. I'm not saying that you're going to be transformed, you know, better than the person next to you or more than the person next to you or, like, what your progress and trajectory looks like. I, I don't know. For some of us, it's different than others. But if there's no transformation, no change, there is no gospel. That is the nature of it. If there's no transformation, it's a pseudo-gospel. It's religious. It's not gospel. The gospel transforms us. 
transform Paul, it transformed the Corinthians. Paul's writing to a church that, that lived in a morally corrupt place, maybe even more so than the place that we live in. I know it's hard to believe sometimes, but Corinth was a, a, a very de depraved place. And these people, although they struggled over time, they had a transformation, some kind of transformation. Their lives were being transformed, and Paul, it was clear, and Paul was writing to them about it. And Paul had seen the same transformation in his life. And if you're a Christian, you've seen it in yours. And what you're declaring to someone is the only thing that will ever transform them in the ways they need to be transformed. This quote from John Newton is too good to not share. John Newton said, as, as a former slave captain of a slave ship and a Christian professing, who was then radically transformed, I think became probably a Christian, and gave his life to doing exactly the opposite. He said, I am not what I want to be. You feel that way? I am not what I ought to be. Can you relate to that? I am not what one day I will be. We look forward to that, don't we? But I am not what I was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And if you're a Christian, that is as true for you as it is for John Newton. Praise God. When we declare the gospel, what we're declaring is doxological. See, you knew it was D.A. Carson because I wouldn't talk like that. It's doxological. It means it's, it's bent toward worship, right? The glory of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. The gospel not only transforms us, it transforms our orientation of our life upward. That everything we do now is for the glory of God. Paul's saying, now I'm proclaiming this for the glory of God. I'm making tents for the glory of God. I'm caring for widows and orphans for the glory of God. I'm, I'm preaching in the synagogue for the glory of God. I'm talking in Solomon's portico for the glory of God. Like I'm, I'm making disciples for the glory of God. Like everything I do in my vocation and everything in life is worship now. It's all for him. My orientation now is upward. The gospel is meant to produce a response of worship to bring glory to God in all of life. Which is why the last verse in this chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, 15, uh, verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your work for the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So whatever you're doing, you're doing it unto him. Your life is a life that's of life directed toward worship. That's doxology. And lastly, what we're declaring when we're declaring the gospel is, is eternal. Some theologians would say eschatological, but that's just too big a word for Sunday morning. It is eternal. At the end of this chapter, Paul says this. We didn't read these verses this morning, but I'm going to read it to you now, verses 50 to 53. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But behold, I'll tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this immortal body must put on, this mortal body must put on immortality. See, when we proclaim the gospel, we are not simply proclaiming something that makes people's lives better in the here and now. Though we are, and it does. We are also proclaiming to them something for the there and then, forever. Something incredibly more valuable. 
maybe you're familiar with compounding interest because you've looked at your IRA recently. It compounds negatively too, doesn't it, sometimes? But you know how you looked at it when you started it, right? Because you knew how the interest compounds. Could you imagine how this, how this compounds forever in eternity? Like we're declaring something to people that is eternal, incalculable value. There might be more, but those are nine things that are true when, about the gospel and what we are declaring when we declare the gospel. Village Church, one of the things I want to say is I just want to say thank you for being a church that, that I believe loves these things, loves to talk about these things, loves to talk about the gospel with each other and with other people, loves to talk about it week in and week out. And from what I can tell, doesn't mind that we always end our, our Sunday service with a good news statement. And this morning it's something like this, that Jesus has declared his gospel to us so that we can receive it, so that we can stand in it, so that we can be transformed by it, and so we can declare it to others. And I, I hope that's good news for you this morning. Jesus has declared his gospel to you. He wants you to receive it, and I believe you have. Most of you have, right? He wants you to stand in it, to be rooted in it, and believe that you are. And he wants you to be transformed by it. And, and I can see that in your life. I hope you can see it in mine. And he wants us all to declare it to others, ourselves, each other, and those beyond the walls and windows of our church. Would you pray with me? Oh man, Lord, you know it's a mystery to me why, um, why the gospel was proclaimed to me the way that it was so faithfully and so many times. Why you gifted me the... <laughs> Uh, the faith to receive it and believe it, the grace to be rooted in it, transformed by it in some way. I just, I, can't, I don't even know where I would be without the truth of your gospel. And I know that every Christian in this room can feel and can relate to the same thing. It's just amazing. It's incredible that you've declared it to us, that we've received it, we believe it. We're transformed by it, and you're inviting us to declare it to others, Lord. And we just want to pause and say we love you, and we love your gospel. And we pray that that be reflected in the way we talk to each other and to the people that be on the walls and windows of our church. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you. And so we give worship to you through song. We do it now in your name, Jesus. Amen.